Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Switch to Xfinity today and get a great offer. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with Xfinity XFi. Plus, you'll get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway. That's a $72 value per year. No other provider offers this. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Welcome to the Weekend Archives of Weird Darkness. I'm about to tell you something more terrifying than anything I've ever shared on Weird Darkness. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Five people every hour die of a drug overdose, ten per hour from alcohol abuse. If someone you know suffers from depression, they might be using without you even knowing it. Don't find out too late. If you even suspect they might be using, call and learn what you can do to help them escape the dark. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get help and keep their job so they can return to it. 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. Eight two five five. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. The man was wearing a black suit and black tie and had very unusual facial appearances with no hair or eyebrows and an extremely pale figure. Hopkins' dog began barking erratically the minute the man entered the home. After the bizarre visitor was finished questioning him about the UFO case, the visit got even stranger. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're already a fan of the show, please help spread the word about the podcast tell a couple of friends about the podcast when I post new episodes, and thanks in advance for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… In spring of 2015, the Great Barrington Historical Society and Museum formally inducted the infamous Reed case of alien encounters. But is the Reed family alien abduction a valid historical fact or UFO fan fiction? Weeping statues are nothing new, and believers claim they are miracles without much investigation. However, the Vatican proves them to be hoaxes almost 100% of the time. The latest is the statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe in New Mexico. Will this be the one that finally convinces the Vatican of a true miracle? Had Leonardo Cianciulli's life not been so muddled by superstition, curses and Romani fortune-tellers she may have never murdered at all. 
A family keeps seeing black creatures in their home with no explanation of where they came from or where they go. The Mysterious Men in Black Are they government agents? Time travelers? One man who experienced them firsthand has a different theory. We'll also look over a few more incidents of people experiencing the Men in Black. We begin there first. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. I'm 55 years old and have known about the Men in Black since the 70s. Personally, the majority of the visits are, in my opinion, demonically orchestrated. I have learned, due to my belief system, not to make these events complicated. It's exactly what it portrays itself to be. Having the gift of discernment reveals what these hybrids are. That is, evil. I call the feelings and smells are all symptoms of a demonic encounter. If you agree with this, then the obvious next conclusion is that these so-called aliens are also demonic. And what does the demonic dwell in? They dwell in shadows. They do not want to be found out. UFO encounters out them and their hybrids and satanic agendas. After all, it's about soul-collecting, is it not? I reside on the west coast of Lake Michigan. My front door faces directly eight miles from an active nuclear power plant that is within months being decommissioned. This process can take up to 20 years. I live in the hot zone range of this very old plant. For three years, due to living on a hill with a spectacular view of the open sky, I have witnessed UFO activity coming directly from the nuclear power plant and fly slowly right over my head. With incredible lighting and maneuvers, including complete standstill hovering. I've also felt that I've been discovered witnessing this and have had some type of acknowledgement from the crafts. It's hard to explain. I just know that they know that I see them. Usually I witness them around 11 p.m. and after. Anyhow, something different happened last August 2017. As I stated, I live on a hill with a steep drop-off approximately 30 feet from my door. This is a brand new apartment complex, and a very short road runs in front of my back patio door. I should have originally said I'm witnessing these events from my back patio. The road runs to the right for about 100 feet and turns right to the front of the complex. Around 1 a.m. I felt compelled to go out onto my patio and look to the right. Now below the hill is nothing but woods. I saw three very tall, slender men come up the hill onto the road in perfect formation, walking extremely slow, dressed completely the same, all in black, and suddenly stopped. All three turned their heads directly towards me and just stood still. It seemed like minutes, but I don't think it was. I actually felt an electric charge go from my feet straight up my back up to my head. Not only that, the fear I felt and also a sickness in my stomach was nothing I have felt ever in my lifetime. I knew they were evil. They slowly moved their heads in complete synchronized fashion forward and slowly, and I mean slowly, 
continued to walk forward and disappeared from sight. I know what I just witnessed. That was pure evil. Now, with that being said, I don't know if it was a warning, a visit, or what. I've not spoken about this event until now. Summer is almost here again, and I wonder what I will witness. Others have eerie encounters with the mysterious men in black as well. Here are just a few. Dr. Herbert Hopkins was working as a consultant on a UFO case in Maine. One evening, he received a phone call from someone purporting to be an activist in the UFO community, asking him if he could visit Hopkins to discuss the case. Only minutes later, the man arrived. The man was wearing a black suit and black tie and had very unusual facial appearances with no hair or eyebrows and an extremely pale figure. Hopkins' dog began barking erratically the minute the man entered the home. After the bizarre visitor was finished questioning him about the UFO case, the visit got even stranger. He informed Hopkins that there were two coins in Hopkins' pocket, which was correct, and asked him to remove one. Hopkins complied and held the coin, a shiny new penny, in the palm of his hand. The man in black told Hopkins to watch the coin closely. After a few moments, the coin took on a silvery appearance and then appeared to be going out of focus. It then began to fade and eventually disappeared altogether. The man in black informed Hopkins that the coin would never be seen on this plane again. He then inquired as to whether Hopkins was familiar with alleged UFO abductee Barney Hill. Hopkins replied that he had heard of Hill but was under the impression that he had died in the not-too-distant past. The man in black informed Hopkins that he was correct. Barney didn't have a heart, said the man, just like you no longer have a coin. It should be noted that Barney Hill actually died of a cerebral hemorrhage. The man in black then gently suggested that Hopkins destroy any material he had related to the UFO case. Hopkins, extremely shaken by the encounter, followed the advice of the man and burned all the files he had related to the case. While he had repeated phone troubles after, the phone company said his line had been tampered with, maybe to tap it, he never saw the man again. Dr. Albert K. Bender was a well-written and extremely intelligent researcher who founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau. In 1955, his research was about to yield serious fruit as he prepared to unveil a paper that would prove the U.S. government had, to one degree or another, covered up proof of UFOs. He planned to publish his findings in the Space Review. That was until he was visited by the Men in Black. Bender claims that three men dressed in all black visited him at his home and warned him against pursuing the topic of UFOs any further. The men left Bender scared for his life and he immediately shut down all his research and the Flying Saucer Bureau. Many people who knew him claimed that Bender was a changed man after this encounter. His later works were rambly, almost unreadable, and he seemed to live his life in constant anxiety and terror. He purported to still receive mysterious phone calls, with nobody on the other end, until the end of his life in 2002. Harold Dahl and his son 
were salvaging logs on a fishing boat when they spied six donut-shaped crafts flying in the air above them. The crafts drop molten waste onto the lake, which allegedly kills Dahl's dog and injures his son. A few days later, after talking about the affairs with his boss and friends, he was visited by a mysterious man dressed in all black. The man urged him to not discuss the encounter. Not long after, he was also visited by several Air Force agents who were said to be on a mission to gather information. Dahl's story definitely got the attention of various law enforcement agencies in the United States, leading the FBI to write a report on the matter. Not long after the encounter with the man in black, Dahl claimed that the whole thing was a hoax, but then recanted that years after, having allegedly made the first confession under duress. Paul Miller was returning home after a hunting trip when they saw a luminous disk in the sky. The disk landed in an empty field, and two humanoids emerged from the craft. Miller fired his gun at them and believed to have injured one when he fled down a rural road in his car. However, in that moment, he realized he had lost time. It was almost three hours later than when he first encountered the craft. He shrugged it off and went back to his Air Force job the next day. However, upon entering work, he was immediately confronted by three men in black suits. They told him that they had his file. Despite having told nobody about the event, the men said that they knew all about it and mentioned that the encounter would be best forgotten. They seemed to know everything about me, where I worked, my name, everything else, Miller said. They also asked questions about his experiences, as if they already knew the answers. Miller, terrified, did not come forward about his experience until years later. Danny Gordon was a radio personality who became interested in a flurry of Wythe County UFO sightings. Multiple people across the county claimed to have seen bizarre objects in the sky, and Gordon decided to investigate. Gordon became obsessed with getting photos of the objects, including one time where an entire school bus of students saw the UFOs flying over a shopping mall as Gordon took photos. Eventually, Gordon snapped a few photos at extremely close range that allegedly verified they were not of this world. However, strange things began happening to Gordon. He received a phone call from a man who claimed to be ex-military and warned him that his research could cost him everything and urged him to stop for his family's sake. Gordon was also interviewed by two men in black suits who claimed to work for a magazine publication. Not long after the interview, Gordon realized all his photos were missing. He contacted the magazine for information and they claimed to have never heard of him, much less commissioned an article about him. Not long after, Gordon suffered a heart attack, and his doctor warned him that all the research and stress was jeopardizing his health. Gordon gave up the story and was never bothered again. UFO researcher Jack Robinson and his wife Mary began to experience extremely strange events as they pursued more alien and UFO-related research. They would come home to find their house rummaged and looked through, and their UFO files disturbed. Mary also began to notice a strange man in a black suit and hat staring up at their apartment from the doorway. 
Mary mentioned this activity to a friend, who drove over and saw what she was talking about for himself. The friend, Tim Green Beckley, snapped a photo of the man which is believed to be one of the most ironclad pieces of proof of the men in black. Professor Peter Rogerwicks claims that he was reading a UFO book in the library when a strange pale man wearing all black sat down next to him. The man began talking to the professor and asked him about his opinion on flying saucers. The professor replied that he wasn't super interested and the man became very agitated. If he eventually left, leaving Professor Rogerwicks extremely uncomfortable and anxious. He did not reveal this story until many years later when he finally gave a lecture on the subject. He remains convinced that it was a Men in Black official who confronted him in the library and to this day is trying to find more people who have had similar experiences. And finally, there's actor Dan Aykroyd, who has come forward with his story about how he was taping a show about the paranormal. He stepped out to take a phone call from Britney Spears who was asking him to appear on Saturday Night Live with her when he noticed a black Ford parked across the street. A tall man stepped out of the Ford and stared him down. Aykroyd turned away for just a moment and then turned back to find that the man and the car had completely vanished. After he finished his phone call, he returned to the studio to learn that his show had been canceled and he was ordered to stop filming immediately. Some doubt his claim but Aykroyd says he knew what he saw and maintains that there was some kind of connection between these men in black and the end of his paranormal show. In the spring of 2015, the Great Barrington Historical Society and Museum formally inducted the infamous Reed case of alien encounters. A shocking precedent, this is thought to be the first ever UFO encounter that a historical society or American museum has declared to be a historical fact. However, it was not a decision that came easily. It was actually far from unanimous. There are a total of nine voting members on the historical society's board and three were vocally opposed to the UFO case induction. The minority vote was not alone. The Great Barrington Historical Society and Museum's decision and its surrounding controversy have led many to wonder, is the Reed family alien abduction a valid historical fact or UFO fan fiction? It all began in the small town of Sheffield, Massachusetts in the 1960s. On a September night in 1966, six-year-old Thomas Reed and his younger brother Matt were sitting in their family home on Boardman Street. Things were fairly quiet in their residence that evening. It seemed like a sleepy late summer evening like any other. Until the lights came. Young Thomas suddenly noticed strange flashing lights coming from a frisbee-shaped object that appeared to have touched down in their yard. At that moment, everything seemed to have changed, including the pressure in their home. Before they knew it, the Reed brothers found themselves outside in front of the strange illuminated craft, staring down life forms not of this world. Before the brothers knew it, they were being escorted inside the UFO by the alien beings. Thomas would later recall the creatures as odd-looking, emitting a perpetual ethereal glow. 
Once all were aboard, they showed the Reed brothers images of a willow tree and a large body of water on a big screen. That was all Thomas recalled. As quickly as it had all happened, he seemed to be back inside his home on Boardman Street. The stuff happens very quickly, Thomas explained later. You're not sure if it's two seconds or ten minutes or twenty minutes. A similar encounter would occur the following year, in 1967. The brothers were asleep in their shared bedroom when they were awakened by bright lights and eerie dead silence. And once again, they inexplicably found themselves back inside the spaceship. During this encounter, the alien beings seemed to be very intrigued with the brothers' human anatomy, particularly Thomas's cleft foot. He would later describe feeling like a walking petri dish. The final Reed family alien encounter would occur in 1969, and this time it involved everyone. Thomas, Matt, their mother and grandmother were driving back from a horse show in Ashley Falls on Route 7. It was just an ordinary family ride home. Just like both of their prior occurrences, there was no warning that something strange was about to happen. Then there were strange lights, a sudden shift in pressure, and deafening silence. Suddenly, Thomas recalls being back in the spaceship. He remembers being in a big, dark room, a body-encasing chamber, a series of long, illuminated corridors, and frightfully calling out for his mother and other family members. After all family members were mysteriously returned to the vehicle, the Reeds experienced much confusion and disorientation. They believed that their vehicle was facing an entirely different direction than when it had stopped before the lights earlier. And it wasn't just the vehicle that was in a state of disarray. The family members were scattered about the countryside highway. Thomas located his grandmother first. She was wandering aimlessly in the middle of the road. Although his mother had been driving earlier, she was now seated in the vehicle's passenger seat in a seemingly catatonic state. His little brother Matthew was fortunately close by in the back seat, although he was out cold and curled up in a fetal position. Thomas Reed and his family's claims have been investigated by Bigelow Aerospace, a mutual UFO network, and many other recognized organizations. Although most of the encounters are largely based on the words of Thomas himself, there are a few major pieces of supporting evidence worth noting. First, corresponding UFO reports filed by area residents. Up until the 1969 event, the primary witnesses were Thomas and his younger brother, Matt. However, when the Reed family was seemingly abducted by aliens on a public roadway, there was some corroborating testimony from witnesses unrelated to them. At least 40 other individuals reported seeing an unidentified flying object or strange lights in the area that evening. Second, the magnetic field that occurred with every incident. During each encounter, Thomas Reed described a sudden change in pressure. Official reports filed in the town of Sheffield include unexplained spikes in radiation and magnetic readings around the time of each occurrence. And third, Thomas Reed's polygraph test. In 2010, Thomas underwent a polygraph test in his Knoxville home. He was questioned about the 1966 incident, and the polygraph found that he had answered all questions regarding the encounter truthfully. Some have taken issue with the fact that this UFO encounter is being recorded as a historical fact. During the 1969 encounter, 
Dozens of concerned citizens reported seeing an unidentified flying object in the area. Many of those witnesses then called the local radio station, WSBS, which covered the sightings. For this reason, the 1969 encounter has gone down in Sheffield history. But skeptics aren't sure the Reed family should have anything to do with it. They believe that the UFO sighting itself should be a part of history, but the alleged abductions are based primarily on anecdotal evidence submitted solely by the Reeds, not any actual historical evidence. During the 1960s, three separate close encounters of the fourth kind rocked the quiet town of Sheffield, Massachusetts, and changed four family members forever. Thomas Reed and his family gave compelling accounts of real-life extraterrestrial abductions, but it wasn't just them who noticed something strange. During the Reed family's 1969 encounter, dozens of townspeople also reported seeing an unidentified object in the area. Whether any or all of these encounters are true or not remains to be seen. But either way, the Reed family alien abduction is now a permanent part of history in the Great Barrington Historical Society and Museum. This weekend archive of Weird Darkness returns in just a moment. I've told people numerous times in the past that if I ever own my own business and I have employees that I have to take care of, one of the job training requirements is having them listen to or read the book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It has been extremely beneficial to me through the years. I've listened to the audiobook numerous times. I've got the print book as well on my bookshelves, but it is a pretty long book. However, right now you can listen to the entire Blinkist version and it'll only take you 15 minutes. And you can listen to it absolutely free with a seven-day trial to Blinkist. I love Blinkist. I use it every single day. And it's made for busy people like me and you who want to get the main points out of books quickly without having to read the entire book because, let's face it, we just don't have the time. Well, with an audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy you can finish four books a day just while on your commute back and forth to work. And now they have a special deal just for Weird Darkness listeners. You can have a seven-day free trial so you can get all the books, including Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And after that seven days is up, you can still get Blinkist for 25% off if you want to continue as a subscriber. If not, you can still keep the free version of Blinkist and get a new book every single day anyway. Check it out. Go to Blinkist.com slash WeirdDarkness. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash WeirdDarkness. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Mike said, Darren, I ordered two queen-size MyPillows and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Well, right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com, promo code WEIRD. There have been stories of statues weeping, blinking, 
crying and wanking ever since the dawn of statues. While only the pigeons know for sure, the accounts have been prevalent enough that the Catholic Church, paranormal investigators, and hoaxbusters have fought their way through the crowds of believers and wannabelievers to attempt to vouch for their authenticity or prove them to be hoaxes. So far, the hoaxers have a near-perfect batting average. Only one weeping statue has ever been certified by the Vatican. But that's not stopped representatives of the Catholic Church from visiting Our Lady of Guadalupe Catholic Church in Hobbs, New Mexico, where many parishioners claim to have seen a statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe appearing to be crying. Is this the one that will break the miracle losing streak? I actually saw how she was dripping and that's when I took the video and it's just incredible. Local TV station KRQE reports that witness and 10-year parishioner Marcello Servan got a video of the alleged weeping, something that will help investigators. Witness Paul Campos will also help them. You can even get a sense of her presence. You can smell roses in her tears. I've got a tissue that I have taken wiped from her mantle. Samples and videos have helped debunk weeping and bleeding statue accounts in the past, with the videos showing alterations and DNA tests showing in one instance that dripping blood was from a male. These statues are usually made of plaster and sometimes hollow, both of which allow for absorption of moisture or alterations that perpetuate the hoax. However, this one is not plaster. I couldn't tell you. I mean, I think that faith is an issue. Technically, of course, the metal doesn't hold water. KVIQ tracked down Ricardo Flores Castanis, who works at the foundry in Mexico City where the bronze statue – that's right, bronze – was cast and then loaned to the church in Hobbs. He's at a loss and is anxious to find out what the church investors discover. What that might be is the other way some weeping statue hoaxes are perpetrated – by applying water or oil to the statue when no one's looking. Church members claim there was nothing on the statue until a service on the previous Sunday when it suddenly appeared to be weeping. Or was that just the first time anyone looked at the statue closely? Whatever the case, the statue has been under constant observation since then because the crowds have forced the pastor, Father Jose Pepe Segura, to keep it open. He's also anxious for an investigation by the local diocese of Las Cruces whose leader, Bishop Oscar Cantu, said that it has already begun. Father Pepe is part of it because he also wiped up some of the tears with a napkin, which he saved, and claimed that more tears appeared. Apparently, there is another sample someone preserved with cotton balls. Diocese spokesperson Deacon Jim Winder assures everyone that the investigation will be fair and thorough. He plans to do DNA tests on the tear samples, examine the statue for hidden tubes, consult with the bronze experts at the foundry, and interview the witnesses, which may number in the hundreds. That could take years. We will investigate to rule out any chances of man-made causes or natural causes. We don't want to jump to any conclusions, he says. It's the end of May. It's hot in New Mexico. And the bronze statue is a new addition to Our Lady of Guadalupe Catholic Church in Hobbs. Could it be condensation forming on the cold bronze, or will it be proven to be a miracle?
it's important to know that Leonardo Cianciulli was fiercely protective of her children. After losing 13 of her 17 children before the age of 10, it's no wonder that the four remaining children were treated with the utmost care. So when police came calling, accusing her son Giuseppe of murdering three local spinster women, she and Shuley immediately confessed to the crimes she had worked so hard to conceal from authorities. In fact, not only did she and Shuley confess to the murders, she described in great detail their aftermath, including boiling the bodies, baking them with the blood, and turning the fat into soap, all of which were shared so generously with her neighbors during afternoon tea. Leonardo Cianciulli was not always a monster, though her adolescent life had her set up to be. Before even reaching adulthood, she had attempted suicide twice. Then she married a registry office clerk who her parents strongly disapproved of as they'd had a more respectable setup in mind. She and Chuli claimed that upon her marriage, her mother cursed her, dooming her to a life of misery forevermore. Though there was, of course, no proof, a curse doesn't seem that unlikely when one looks at Chi and Chuli's life after her marriage. A few years into her marriage, Chi and Chuli was imprisoned for fraud. Three years later, her home was destroyed by an earthquake. She got pregnant 17 times, but lost 13 of her children either to miscarriage or illness in their youth. She eventually went to see a fortune teller, a traveling Romani woman who did nothing to quell her fears of a curse. In your right hand I see prison, the fortune teller told her. In your left, a criminal asylum. Laboring under the curse she felt was put on her by her mother and the Romani fortune teller's prediction, Leonardo Cianciulli became highly superstitious. When her son Giuseppe told her in late 1939 that he was going to join the Italian army, she and Chuli turned to one thing that she believed would keep her son safe – human sacrifice. She chose her candidate well, a local spinster woman who she thought no one would miss named Faustina Setti. Inviting Setti over under the guise of setting her up with a husband, she and Chuli had her write letters to her family members, telling them that she would be visiting the man abroad. Then she subdued Seti with drugged wine and murdered her with an axe. From there, she cut Seti into nine pieces and gathered her blood into a basin. In her official statement upon her arrest, she described the things she did to the body next. Quote, I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven, ground it and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine, kneading all the ingredients together. I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them." Unquote. According to some, she and Chuli also took Seti's life savings, which she had received as payment for setting Seti up with a husband. While one would think a single sacrifice would have been sufficient to prevent her son's imminent demise, Leonardo Cianciulli didn't seem to be able to stop at just one. Soon after Seti's murder, Cianciulli found another victim, 
another local, familyless woman named Francesca Soavi. Like she had with Seti, she and Shuli convinced Soavi that she had organized a teaching job for her abroad and made her write letters to her friends detailing her trip. And, as she had with Seti, she fed her drugged wine, killed her with an axe, baked her into tea cakes, and stole her savings. Her third victim, however, was where she slipped up. The third victim, Virginia Cassiopo, was a noted soprano whom she and Chuli had promised a job working with an impresario in Florence. This time, however, instead of only baking her body into tea cakes and feeding them to her neighbors, she and Chuli also melted her flesh down and turned it into soap. She ended up in the pot like the other two, she said. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap, she said in her statement. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet. Though she and Julie thought she had covered her tracks, she had missed something. Unlike her first two victims who had little or no family, Cassiopo had a sister-in-law, a very nosy sister-in-law. She didn't believe Cassiopo's letter detailing her quick departure and had, in fact, seen her entering Chi and Julie's home the night she had supposedly left. Immediately, she reported the disappearance to the police who quickly investigated Chi and Julie. At first, Leonardo Cianciulli defended herself, never admitting to any wrongdoing. It was only when the police openly suspected her son, one of the four children she had worked so hard to protect from the world, that she admitted it was her and that her son had nothing to do with it. The trial of Cianciulli lasted only a few days. She was found guilty of her crimes and granted a 33-year sentence that echoed the Romani woman's prophecy with eerie accuracy. 30 years in a prison and three years in a criminal asylum. During her years in the asylum in 1970, at age 79, Leonardo Cianciulli died of cerebral apoplexy, a type of intracranial hemorrhage. Her body was returned to her family for burial, but her murder weapons, including the pot that her victims were boiled in, were donated to the Criminology Museum in Rome, Italy. Today, visitors can see her collection of axes and peer inside the vat she used to boil human beings. When I was about eight or nine, I was at a friend's house. We were living on the Isle of Wight at the time. My friend lived in a big house just set back from the beach. We were playing with his Star Wars figures, and I noticed what I thought was a black cat. I asked my friend when his parents had gotten him a cat. He stated, we don't have one. He seemed a little agitated at my question, so I went into the hall and there it was again, right by the stairs leading down to the living room. I said, well, what is this then? When he came into the hallway, it dashed down the stairs. He naturally didn't see it and looked even more upset. His mother was sitting down in the living room and I called down to her to see if she had seen the cat. She was extremely upset and told us to go back into my friend's room and stop playing around the stairs. It had been arranged that I was to spend the night, but my parents showed up about a half an hour later and took me home. I never really knew why. I figured I had upset his mother somehow and she was just mad at me 
or punishing him for playing by the stairs. Several years later, when I was about 17, an event at home got my mother and I onto a discussion about the supernatural and ghosts. She proceeded to tell me about what had happened at my friend's house all those years ago. The family had been seeing black creatures of varying sizes, and they'd been terrorizing the family. The origin of these creatures had almost always been the bathroom, which was right next to my friend's bedroom. They had been attacked several times, causing injuries to the family. What I had seen was one of these creatures, one of the most violent from what they said. His mother had called my mother in a panic. They'd never appeared to anyone but family members until now. I learned that later that week the local vicar and several vicars from the mainland had gone to their house to try an exorcism. They were violently attacked and one member of the group had become possessed momentarily. They apparently had no further problems from then on, but every time I go by that house I get this sinking feeling, like it's watching as you go by. What brought me and my mother into this discussion was odd as well. I've had several times when I was at home, alone up in my room, and would hear the kitchen cabinets open and close, sounds of glasses and the fridge opening. I would assume someone was home and I'd go down to see who was there. No one was there. No one was home. Nothing had been disturbed. Our house is two stories with a basement. We would enter the house from the back door because the garage is next to the back edge of the house. When you walk into the back door, you come into a landing or staircase hall. The hall went up into the kitchen area to the left and went down into the basement to the right. You couldn't see directly into the next room of the basement. The stairs ended above the sub-pump, and the room was off to the left from the bottom. When I came into the back door, I looked at my right as I came in because someone looked around the corner, casually as if to see who was home and then went back into the basement. The basement lights were on. I went up into the kitchen and my mother was sitting at the table working on a cake. I asked her who was in the basement because I thought it was her. She said, no one. I said, well, someone just looked at me from down there and the lights are all on. We went and looked and the lights were off. We went down and no one was there. I told her about the other things that had been happening in the house and she seemed kind of skeptical. For some reason, she may have thought that it was their creatures, I don't know, but she told me all about the creatures at my friend's house. I was so upset about whatever it was that looked at me from the basement that I don't really know how the conversation got there, it just drifted in that direction. But there have been other events that have made me believe in ghosts, demons, or whatever they are. There is something there. It may be a natural extension of our after-existence. It may be evil or the devil, I don't know. I have found that if I leave them alone and just take them with a bit of humor and a grain of salt sometimes, then I have on the whole been left alone. I haven't had an experience in about four years. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. I post patron-only content and bonus materials there as well, including chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes. If you liked this episode, please 
tell a couple of friends about it and leave a review of it in the podcasting app that you're using to listen. Doing that helps the show to get seen by others, and I might read your reviews here in the podcast. Farms Inner City says, Just a fantastic podcast. I'm new to podcasts and came across this one based off the name and description. I'm so happy that this was the first paranormal-themed podcast I found and since subscribed to. The stories are varied in all areas of the paranormal. The narrator's voice keeps you in tune to the story without changing pitch and tone, and there are several stories for each segment. Keep up the good work. Cesar Vasquez says, This is a great podcast. It helps me sleep and helps me get things out of my mind. Sleepless In says, For me, I believe a person's voice will make or break your podcast. The gentleman that narrates these stories has a great voice. He actually gets my nerves going and gives me the creeps with some parts of certain stories. They're great short stories, some a bit longer than others but very entertaining. I love listening to them while I garden at nighttime. It gives it a little more excitement and makes it more scary. Thank you. I go through quite a few of these kinds of podcasts and really, for me, it's how the person sounds and presents it. You've got my vote on this one. Keep up the good work. Thanks to all of you who've been posting reviews, I really appreciate it. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. All stories in this episode are purported to be true. You can find links and sources in the show notes. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I have links to all my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. <laughs>